if we wanted to trace our trajectory very briefly over the past several months, we could do it by answering the following questions. As Christians, first, how should we live? Or how ought we to live? The answer is we ought to live according to the commandments of God. We ought to, we should as Christians obey God's law, specifically the moral law found in the Ten Commandments. The next question would be, how do we do that? The answer is, we do that by faith. We must aim at obedience by faith and through faith. We don't do it, we don't obey in our own strength. And God doesn't expect us to obey in our own strength. He knows that we're powerless. And we don't obey in order to earn our salvation. You need to put this before your children very often. Put it before them many times. I do this all the time. I'll say, God expects us to obey His commandments so that we can be good enough to get to heaven. And if they don't respond with, no, no, that's not right. Well, then you need to keep teaching. They need to understand. They must obey, but not in order to earn their salvation. We don't do it looking at ourselves. We obey in faith. Then we answered the question, or we asked, what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It is a gracious disposition wrought in the soul where the faculties are arranged so that we look outward to God in all of His fullness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we accept and receive from Him. We turn our attention to Him to receive. As many have said, faith is like the hand of the soul. It just reaches out and waits to receive and to take from God. Last week we asked the question, faith in what? What is the object of our faith? We looked at our confession that arranges it this way. First, whatsoever is revealed in the Word of God. That means our faith ultimately has to take into its scope everything written in this book. Every Word of God is going to be helpful and fruitful for our faith. But specifically, we look at the Word of God as it reveals to us God and all of His glorious attributes, the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His excellencies or the excellencies of His person and His work, His offices, prophet, priest, and king, all that He's done for us, and the operations of the Holy Spirit. What, what does the Bible say the Holy Spirit will do to me and in me? And then we funnel that down even further, the confession does, that says that the principal acts of saving faith are, are located immediately upon Christ. They have immediate relation to Christ. So we, we take in all of the Scripture, as all of the Scripture reveals Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and as the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit culminates in the work of Jesus Christ, our mediator on our behalf. The next question that we want to answer is, how do we live by faith? What does that mean, to live by faith? And I want to begin to answer that question by sort of dovetailing that answer, how do we live by faith, in with that final point regarding the object of our faith, which is Christ Himself. And I want to quote again from our Confession of Faith. This is, The principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ. Now notice these verbs. Because we're asking the question, how do we live by faith? What do I do? Notice these verbs. Immediate relation to Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting. That's what you do. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. I read this quote several weeks ago from Walter Marshall. He said, To live, walk, and work by faith is all one, it's all the same thing as living, walking, working by means of 
Christ and His saving endowments. To live by faith is to live by Christ. To live by faith is to receive, rest, accept the saving endowments of Christ. How do we live? We have to live in obedience to God. How do we obey God? We do it by faith. How do we live by faith? Accepting, receiving, resting in the work of Christ and His saving endowments. Now I want to show you that from the Scriptures. I have two particular texts in mind that we'll look at this week and next week. And these, te these texts that we're going to look at do three things. They funnel our attention toward Christ as the object of faith. These texts will not let us turn our eyes away from Christ and what He's done. The second thing that they do is they actually take into their compass gospel obedience, uh, Christian obedience, the, the life of, of a Christian, how we ought to keep the commands of God. And they give an explicit answer to the question, how do we live the life of faith? Or what do I do? Because it's very easy to say, well, we walk by faith. What does that mean exactly? What do I do in living by faith? We, we describe faith as a, a, a gracious principle or a habit within us that's inside. What does that have to do with my, my actual living outside? So these texts answer that question. I believe the first of them is the one we read, Romans 6, 1 to 14, which is probably, in my estimation, the premier text on sanctification in all of Scripture. This is the text that gets us off the ground. We have to start here. And, and it, it gives us the absolute crux, pun intended, the crux of the matter. It forces our eyes to look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it says right there, look, don't stop looking, and then live. That's what he's, that's what he's saying here. Now, the way I'm going to walk through this passage is a little different than normal. I'm not just going to walk through it beginning in verse 1 and into verse 14. I want to sort of consider it like a big clump and, and take out the several themes that Paul addresses and analyze them one by one. If we could picture that this is sort of a, a clump of biblical truth, in this clump of truth there are several things, I think four maybe four divisions of a pie, that Paul just keeps bringing forward. As we're reading it, you can see what he's doing. He shows you this, he shows you this, he shows you this, he shows you this, he shows you this. He just keeps going back and forth to the same things. And then he sort of, as he, as he gets us looking, then he sort of backs down. He says, now don't stop doing that. Just keep looking at those things. And that's how you live. That's, that's what, the way I want to break it up. First, the context we need to keep in mind. Paul's answering a common question a natural response to the doctrine of the gospel. In chapters 1 through 3, he consigned all men to sin and to punishment under the law of God. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter your, your uh, ethnic background, sociological background, age, it, none of that matters. If you're a human being, the law of God says because you're a sinner, you must die. That's chapters 1 to 3 generally. By the time he gets to chapter 4, we could say at the end of chapter 3, he then puts forth Christ and, what, and shows that in Christ a righteousness has been brought in that satisfies the problem of our sin. In chapter 4, he addresses generally the doctrine of justification by faith. That the way that we get that righteousness from God is through faith. Christ earned it. We get it through faith imputed to us. And then in chapter 5... Justification is traced to its source and compared with the opposite. And we see that. He says, Christ, by this one act, He's earned for us a righteousness. The opposite of that was Adam in his one sin. We all fell. There's, he's setting forth these two, these two opposing strands of history. We're either in Adam or we are in Christ. Though all men are condemned in Adam... Based solely upon the work of Christ through faith, men can be declared righteous. That's the good news. God can declare us righteous because of what Christ has done. Now the ob objection is raised. If that's the case, if God's grace is magnified in justifying sinners, even though they're sinners, 
He shows His grace and that He justifies us freely through faith in Christ Jesus, then could we not just go on sinning? If, if, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then let's just keep on sinning and grace will keep on abounding and that will just display God's grace more and more and more. Should we not just go and live like that? Paul's answer is not merely, no, we shouldn't do that. Paul's answer is, that's not even possible. It's not, it's not a possibility. Notice verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, that's our state, how can we still live in it? If we're like that, how can we live contrary to who we are? It's not possible because of who we are. We've entered into a new state of existence that Paul calls dead to sin. It's not possible that we continue in sin. And if it's not possible that we would continue in sin that grace may abound, then we must conclude that it is expected that a Christian will, who's been justified by grace through faith will live a life of obedience. You can't go down that road the only other option is that you go down this road, which increases ever more in obedience, a life pleasing to God. That's the context. He's answering that question. And he's, he's explaining how all that works. He's explaining why it's not possible and how we as Christians are to go about living the life expected of us. He, here's the why and the how. Why? It's not possible. Okay, then how? We recognize we have sin in us. We're sinners. So how? I feel like if I'm just set on a trajectory, if I'm all by myself, I'm just going to continue in sin. So Paul says that it's actually not possible. And here's how. Here's what you need to do to live the life that's laid before us as new believers, as new creatures. First, notice that throughout these verses, I'm going to get into the passage. And again, we've got four pieces of a, of a pie here, four things. First... Throughout these verses, Paul repeatedly makes mention of two deaths. Two deaths. The death of the saints and the death of Christ. And we'll start with the death of the saints because that's where Paul starts, with the death of the saints. Notice in verse 2, and what I'm going to do is, is just, I'm just going to grab little words and phrases. So if you can keep your Bible open, that'd be really helpful. I'm just going to grab these little words and phrases out to show you these themes. In, in verse 2, Notice the phrase, we who died to sin, or who have died, or it may be phrased differently, but the, the, the point is, we, Christians, are, have gone through a death. We have died. That's what he's saying. In verse 4, we were buried. In verse 5, we have been united with Him in a death. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you that death is our death. That's talking about the saints. A death, which is our death. Verse 6, Our old self, or our old man, was crucified. Then in verse 8, We have died. See, we see in these phrases the death of the saints. When he says we, he's including himself. We, along with the Roman Christians, along with all Christians, he's saying we've died. We could put it in this order. We've been crucified. We've died. We've been buried. A death has taken place. Now what's Paul talking about? He's saying the same thing that he said of himself in Galatians 2. In Galatians 2, he's talking just about me, himself, but in here, he's expanding it to all who belong to Christ. In Galatians 2, he said, through the law, I died to the law. Now he's saying, that's true for every Christian. Through the law, you died to the law. The phraseology is different, but, but I, I do believe he's saying the same thing. He's clearly not saying that Christians have actually physically died, right? You could do this. If you can do this, you have not physically died. So we know that's not what he's talking about. He's not implying that we're spiritually dead because if we're believers, we've been raised to life. We're, we're new creatures and we're alive. He's addressing the old self or the old man. 
I'm going to describe that as our human nature as it stood in Adam, condemned by God's law. That's what he's talking about. And he says that we have died to sin, or we who are dead to sin. That is, we are dead with regard to the guilt that comes with sin because of God's law. Through the law, I died to the law. That's Galatians. Here, we're dead to sin. We've died to it. The language in, in all of these verses, we who died, we have died, we have been crucified, our old man was crucified, it's all dealing with a past, accomplished, objective reality. We're not, he's not saying we're dying. He says it's already happened at some point in the past. It's already taken place. It's a done deal. Dead, crucified, buried. That's what he's saying. Now this is important because in this language about our death, he's going back to consider a past objective reality. Now, if we're comparing justification and sanctification, sanctification is not a past objective reality. That's an ongoing subjective reality in our lives. The only other option is justification. That's the past objective reality that's taken place. So, though he is dealing with sanctification and Christian living, he goes back to the same source of our justification. He's going back to there. Remember we said definitive sanctification always leads to progressive sanctification. They're always together. They have the same root. That's, that's what he's doing here. Paul's going back to our justification. Our confession describes justification as God pardoning our sins and accounting and accepting our persons as righteous. Now usually when we talk about justification, strictly speaking, according to the Word, justification is only declared righteous. But the doctrine of justification assumes a pardoning of sins and a declaration of us as righteous. And the pardoning of our sins is a past tense objective reality. Our sins being pardoned are a past tense objective reality. Your sins, the pardon of your sins is a past tense objective reality. That, that means that's happened historically. It's done. This is why people ask the question, well, if our sins are already pardoned, why do we have to ask forgiveness? That's a good question. The answer is not, well, they're not forgiven yet. They're not really pardoned until you say something about them. That's not the answer. The pardon of our sins is a past objective reality. Now, how can God pardon our sins? Well, according to the text so far, because we died. We're crucified, died, dead, and buried. In other words, we've already suffered the penalty. The wages of sin is death. The text says, I've already died. Now, how is that? Well, notice the mention of the death of Christ. Here's the other death. This is what Paul's doing. Death of the saints, death of Christ. Death of the saints, death of Christ. Look at them. He wants you to see both of them together. Back to verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Verse 4, Christ was raised from the dead. You can't be raised from somebody else's death. That's His death. It's referring to Christ's death. And back to verse 5, we've been, we, we've been united with Him in a death. That's our death. But it's a death what? Like His. Like His what? Like His death. That's a reference to Christ's death. Verse 10, the death He died he died to sin once for all. That's his death. When Paul speaks of Christ's death in this passage, he's talking about his physical death on the cross. A, a, a historical moment in time fact of history. All four Gospels, as, where, as well as the apostles in their preaching in the book of Acts, as well as secular history, it all bears witness to the factual reality of the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a cross. That happened. That's what he's saying. That took place. Two deaths. The death of the saints, the death of Christ. The death of the saints, the death of Christ. You see, he's putting that before us. Now he's going to sh show us two more pictures. Two resurrections. Not only are there two deaths, but there are two resurrections, that of Christ and that of the saints. And again, we'll start here with Christ because that's what Paul mentions first. Look at verse 4 again. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory 
of the Father. Verse 5, we have this phrase, a resurrection like His. Like His what? Like His resurrection. And then in verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. He was raised from the dead. This is Christ's resurrection. Again, when the scriptures here address the resurrection of Jesus, this is not metaphor. This is not an analogy. This is not, imagine that this happened. It's talking about the factual reality. They're bearing witness to the actual physical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Again, Paul here, all four gospels, all of the preaching of the apostles, plus other extra-biblical sources all testify to this fact that that man Jesus who was crucified on the cross on Friday, he was in the tomb by Friday evening, by Sunday evening, he's alive walking around. That's what it's talking about. His actual physical resurrection from the dead on the first day of the week. Then the passage describes the resurrection of the saints. Back to verse 4. We too might walk in newness of life. Or we could say in a new life. We were dead. Now we've got a new life. That's a reference to a kind of resurrection. Chapter 6, verse 5. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. The like His, that's His resurrection. This resurrection, this is our resurrection. The resurrection of the saints. And then in verse 8, we shall also live with Him. Again, the, the, the picture is that we died. To live means that we have to be raised from the dead. We'll live with Him. So that's our resurrection. The meaning of the resurrection or resurrections in this passage seem to be twofold. If somebody says it's, it's only onefold, I don't have a problem with that. But it does seem like, based on the language, that they're twofold. The, the reference to newness of life, that's not talking about an actual physical bodily resurrection out of the grave. Based on the language, he says that we too might walk right now presently in newness of life. That's, that's now. But then we have the phrases, a resurrection like His, live with Him. Those are quite possibly references to resurrections, the actual future bodily resurrection. Um, Verse 8, for example, we believe right now that we will also live with Him. That seems to be pointing future. Um, but if somebody says that they think that that's applying to the, the newness of life or the sanctified Christian life now, that's fine. That, that's going to help my point even more. In answer to the question, should we just go on sinning that grace may abound? Paul says... By no means. Can't happen. And then he says, that's not who you are. You can't. It's not possible. Two deaths have occurred. Two resurrections have occurred. And that's what he's doing. Two deaths, two resurrections. Two deaths, two resurrections. He, just, he says, keep looking at them. Keep looking at them. Keep looking at the deaths. Keep looking at the resurrections. The third part of this pie is the relationship between these things. How does this all go together? How do these deaths and these resur resurrections relate to each other? It's clear that Paul means for us to see that the relationship between them is the very grounds for his answer, may it never be. That's why he can say that. That we cannot continue in sin. And it is the ground of his application of the answer in our daily lives. The, the fact that these deaths and these resurrections go together, ours and Christ's, Whatever, whatever makes them go together is what makes it impossible for us to live, to go on sinning, but to live to God. Notice the language of comparison and relationship in, in several parts. Verse, verse 4, we see this order. Just as Christ, about halfway through the verse, and then at the end of the verse, we too. That's the comparison. Just as Christ, we too. Just as Christ was dead, buried, raised, we too, dead, buried, raised. Verse 5, a death like His, 
a resurrection like His. There's a correlation between our death and His death. Our resurrection, His resurrection. Verse 6 makes it even more explicit. We were crucified with Him. Our crucifixion was with His crucifixion. Verse 8, we died with Christ. Our death was with Christ in His death. Now what does this mean? What The meaning behind or the meaning of the relationship between Christ's death and resurrection and our death to sin and resurrection to new life is shown in the language of union with Christ. Verse 3, we've been baptized into Christ. I don't think that this is a reference to explicitly water baptism, although water baptism signifies this reality. We've been immersed into Christ. Verse 3, we've been immersed, baptized into His death. And then in verse 5, we've been united with Him. The word there for united is actually planted. We've been planted with Him. Imagine you've got your garden rose and you poke a hole, whether you use the, the butt end of your hoe or whatever, you poke a hole. Imagine you drop two seeds in that one hole. That's the picture here. Or maybe you're going to plant trees in your yard. You dig out a big hole and you take two saplings and put them in the same hole and cover them up. Planted together so that what goes in together comes out together. That's the picture. Planted with Him. That's the imagery. Christ went into one tomb. That one tomb was dug out of one rock in one garden for one man. It was sealed with one stone. Multiple guards were sent to guard that one tomb sealed with that one stone. They didn't scatter them out and say, hey, you guys, go guard the tombs. They said, go to the one tomb where He is and guard that one tomb. And yet, the biblical teaching is, it was as if every one of God's elect all went into that one tomb with Him and the stone was sealed behind all of us. We were planted with Him, united with Him in His death. You see what Paul's getting at here. He's not saying that there are as many deaths and resurrections as there are saints. He's saying there's one death, one resurrection, namely that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ours was with Him. And ours is like His. And he's saying that in the, that one death and one resurrection, we find the death to sin and resurrection to life of every saint from the foundation of the world until Christ returns in that one act. This is why it is the crux. It is the hinge of history. All of it. We could say, we can imagine all of history before the cross and all of history after the cross piling into the tomb behind Christ. It all hinges there on what He did in His death and subsequent resurrection. The fourth piece of the, of the pie is, is the goal in all of this. Because Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't just say death, resurrection, death, resurrection, y'all figure it out. You're united with Him, y'all figure it out. And he tells us exactly what the purpose of this was. Remember, the purpose is to explain why true saints do not continue in sin. And he opens up these death and, deaths and resurrections and our union with Christ in both death and resurrection. But he also uses the language of goal or purpose or intention. Notice verse 4. We see the phrase, "...in order that." We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might go to heaven when we die. That's not what it says. He says, in order that we might walk in newness of life. That we might walk, carry out our lives in a new way. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self, or the old man, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would go to heaven. No. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The body of sin has to be brought to nothing. Slavery to sin has to be released. That is the aim. That's the purpose behind all of this teaching. The point that he's making is that our dying with Christ and our death to sin and its guilt and penalty has as its direct result, its consequence, our walking in a new way. 
no longer enslaved to sin. That's the result. When you put these two seeds in the ground, what comes out? New life, not enslaved to sin. That's what grows from this. In other words, because that happened, this happened. Because the penalty of the law is no longer required of us, we can now live in an entirely new way. You can keep the law because the penalty is no longer to be exacted from you. It's no longer to be required of us. Now, there's no doubt that regeneration and the power of Christ's resurrection being applied to us by the Holy Spirit is essential to understand any aspect of gospel obedience. I think that we have made that clear. We've talked about regeneration. We've talked about the indwelling Spirit. We've talked about the work of the Spirit. But Paul doesn't say, since Christ was raised, you've been born again, therefore obedience will naturally flow. In a minute, he's going to tell us what we have to do to bring all of this to application. He's effectively saying that because the penalty of the law has been satisfied in your case, you can now live according to that same law, whereas before you couldn't. Because the penalty of the law has been satisfied, you can now live according to the law. Before you couldn't. That's the goal, the intention, the purpose behind all of this, the purpose behind our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. It's not just to get us to heaven. That's a part of it. That's the end goal of it. But again, our, throughout this series, what have we been asking? What about until then? How do we live until then? This is what he's dealing with here. If we summarize what we see in the text, we could say, because of our union with Christ in His death, the guilt or stain of sin has been removed. How much guilt? All guilt. All guilt has been removed. There's no guilt left. How much stain? All stain has been removed. It's taken away. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Pure. No stain. How many of our sins get this treatment? All sins. Every single sin. So what about the sins this afternoon? No guilt, no stain. What about the sins five years from now? No guilt, no stain. Taken away, removed. The power of sin which is the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, no longer has a grip on the Christian demanding our punishment. It's gone. The goal of our union with Christ in His death is that we would be raised to a new way of living in which sin is no longer a reigning power within us. That's what Paul's saying here. Now let me add, from that, that's the exposition. We're going to use that as sort of a foundation and we're just going to ask several questions now as we begin to apply this. Because you might be thinking... I see the truths, and I see what is supposed to happen, but how do I, how do I make the leap? And Paul's going to tell us in a minute. Number one, here's, here's a question we could ask of the text because there are some assumptions. How does Christ's death render us free from the penalty of the law? We're the ones who've died to sin. We've been crucified with Christ. We've been released from the penalty of the law. How does that work? Well, the Scriptures are clear from beginning to end that the death of Jesus Christ was an act of substitution. Christ died in our place. He took the punishment which was due to our sins. He took it upon Himself. He was punished for our sins so that we could then be released from any penal demands, any, any judiciary uh, demands from God on, on our part for any of our sins. He was punished. The picture is painted in many ways throughout the Scriptures. Think of the Passover. The lamb was killed. The blood of the lamb was put on the door. What does that mean? That means the firstborn son in that house lives. The lamb died 
so that the son lives. That's the picture. It doesn't matter if he's, if he's nervous about it or if he thinks it's going to work. When he wakes up the next day, he says, it worked. Why? The lamb. He could probably still see the ashes of the fire there. They said if anything was left over, burn it. The ashes of the lamb. The lamb died. I'm alive. That's the picture. Or think of Abraham's ram that went up on the mountain to worship. To worship God, you have to offer a sacrifice. He's going to offer his son Isaac. But the angel of the Lord stops his hand. And there's a ram caught in the thicket. So what do we do? We sacrifice the ram. The ram dies. Isaac goes free. He goes home. We see it in texts like Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He's chastised. We get peace. With his wounds, we are healed. He gets wounds. I had wounds. Then we trade. He gets wounds. I get healing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned aside everyone to his own way. We know that to be true in our own experience. Still, to this day, we find ourselves prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Do we not recognize I'm still like a sheep? I still keep having this draw to go my own way. And yet it says that the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Our iniquities laid on Him. When John the Baptist saw Him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not takes away the sin of the Lamb. The Lamb had no sin. He takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Himself said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. His life pays the ransom, the price, so that the many go free. Romans 3, 24 and 25, We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That is by His death, His life-giving. He gives His life over in death, and that takes the wrath of God away from us. He placates God with His own life. Revelation 5.9, the very end. Speaking of the Lamb, you were slain. And by your blood, that is your, your poured out life, you ransomed people for God. You bought them, purchased them for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the, this is the, the scriptural witness of what happened when Christ died. This is how His death sets us free. The death of Christ was for sins that were not His. They were yours and mine. Your sins and my sins. He died for them. He was punished for them. The sins that you commit this very day were laid upon Him that day. Objective, historical fact. He died. You say, my sins deserve death. He died. That's what Paul's saying. He died. Which means that since the penalty of the law has been executed, we are free from its curse. The law which threatened penalties against each and every sin has been satisfied in the place of each and every sin. You can't sin a sin that has not already been laid upon Christ. We're all of the elect of God to have a thousand more lifetimes, to accumulate more lifetimes of sins, we could not out-sin the atonement that has already been made. You can't sin a sin that is somehow beside the fountain of cleansing that has been opened up in Christ's blood. They're all already there. That's what Paul's saying. The atonement has been made. You can come back and check every day of your life. I thought about this illustration in, maybe in, in several ways. If you, if you work in a food service type job where you have to check your schedule regularly, you know, you go at the, at the beginning, maybe you go on Friday, you say, what's my schedule for next week? You're checking to see where your name is, what, what is going to be required of you the following week. 
or in school when all of the, the athletes would go to check the roster to see who made the cut, who made the team, and who didn't. You can go back to the, to the record, come back and check every day of your life, and you should check the record. Come back to Romans 3 and check it every day and see whether God's law has posted some new demand upon you that you have to pay with penance. Check it and see. What does it say? What, what is required of me today? I know I sinned yesterday. Surely God's law has posted something that I have to do to, to, to make a recompense for my sin. There's nothing to pay. It's gone. The atonement department has been emptied of all of its staff and all of its equipment. The room lies vacant and unused. The eternal plan of God for the remission of sins was finished when Christ said, It's finished. Shut the door, lock it, we're done. The work of atonement, it's done. There's nothing more to add, nothing can be taken away. It's finished, complete. Done. All sins, done. When He died. The problem is that many of us keep coming back as if we might find something to pay. Or if we might, as if we might honor God more if we say, well, I know you don't require something, but I'm pretty sure I can work up something to pay for some of these sins. Thomas Wilcox would say, you unchrist Christ when you do that. He didn't come so that you could pay for a few of your sins. He comes so that you didn't have to pay for any of them. It's done. Paul says, when Christ died, you died. Therefore, you're dead to sin. Second question, what is now the relationship between the Christian and sin? If this is the case. Well, I think we know from experience, sin still resides in our flesh. We still have sin waging war in our members. We still have lustings of our flesh that have to be kept under. Sin is still quite powerful. You say, oh, sin's not that powerful. Well, just start making a list of your sins this afternoon and see how strong you are on a Lord's Day when literally all you have laid before you is to worship and rejoice in the resurrected Savior, and yet we still sin. It still is quite powerful in us but it does not reign. It is not all-powerful in us. And our new sins do not require a new satisfaction made to God. They're already paid for. We could start today, and we know there are going to be sins this week. Paid for. Done. Third question, if this union is a fixed reality, is there anything that we must now do to lay hold of its benefits? to use more spiritual language, how do we tap into the spiritual power so that we can walk in newness of life? How do, we, how do we get it? How do we lay hold of Christ and His saving endowments? Well, this brings us to verse 11 of the passage. The first imperative, the first command in the entire book of Romans. So then... You also must consider or reckon. I like reckon better. You must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must reckon yourself dead to sin. That's what he says. How do we, how do we, how do we live? How do we make this work? Where's the switch that we flip to, to live this life? Reckon Yourself dead to sin. The term reckon, this is why I like it better. The term reckon here is something of a mathematical term. We say things like, well, I need to run some numbers and see what the outcome is. Or, or let me get some figures on paper and then we can come to a conclusion. That's what this word means. To reckon is to bring in the data. Bring in the data, analyze the data, and then come to a settled conclusion in your mind about, about the facts. Reckon it. Reckoning is not based on opinion. Reckoning is not based on anything other than fact. Right? Figures don't lie. They don't lie. Just, just give me the data on paper. Because it's math, it never changes. Here are the facts from the data. When you come to a, a, 
a, a satisfied answer regarding the facts, you have reckoned. Paul commands us in order to write gospel obedience. Here's what you need to do. This is step one to get you off the ground in obedience. And, and you never let go of this step. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. We're to reckon ourselves dead in regard to the guilt and penalty of sin. Reckon yourselves absolved of all charges. Reckon yourselves justified before God. That's what he says to do. And this is what we're talking about. This is the life of faith. Living by faith in the Son of God. Notice how this reckoning is a direct application of faith. Faith believes whatsoever is contained in the Scriptures. Faith believes what the Scriptures teach about the attributes of God, the excellencies of Christ, and the operations of the Spirit. So if we think of it this way, in reckoning, we've got to get some figures on paper. We've got to get some data down, some facts. We've got to run some numbers. We get before our minds the facts, the information, and then we reckon... We make a conclusion based on the facts. Not opinion, not feelings. Facts. What are the facts? Paul says, here are the figures. We've ran the numbers. Here's the data. Here's the information. Historical facts. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Fact. That's the data. That's the figure. It's settled. That's what God says. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Fact. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Fact. By His wounds you have been healed. That's the data. Objective. It's laid out. We have it in black and white. Run the numbers. Do the figures. Come to a satisfied mental agreement with what the text says. If we would walk in holiness, we take into account the data of the gospel. If we would walk in obedience, we bring the data before the us in His Word. What has God said concerning Christ? God said Christ paid for sins. There's nothing else to pay for. Reckon yourself in that state. That's what Paul's saying. His death put an end to your sin. In other words, gospel obedience flows from faith. A believed Gospel. You must believe what God has said. God said He put an end to your sin at the cross. How do I know though? Because He raised Him from the dead. Objective fact. He's been raised from the dead. The Scriptures lay out the facts. The figures have already been ran. We have the data on paper penned by the Holy Spirit of God. He said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Christ said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ said, All who come to me, I shall in no wise cast out. Christ said, It is finished. Fact, 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 fact. Do the you run the numbers. What do you come up with? I'm dead to sin. My sins are gone. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. In reckoning yourself dead to sin... You are reckoning according to faith, believing what God has said in His Word about Himself, His Son, His Spirit, and you. You're living by faith. And that will produce obedience. Reckoning what God has said to be true about you will produce obedience. Now, we gotta, I'm going to open that up some more. We're not done yet. Because it sounds like all I'm saying is what Robert Schuller says, the, the power of positive thinking. Just think real positively and, and good things will happen for you. That, that's kind of what it sounds like. Paul's saying, just, just reckon yourself, come to a conclusion about this in your own heart and mind, and then live. The difference is that concept of, of positive thinking is, is really just imaginary. It's all based on your imagination. It's cloudy outside, but I'm going to... I'm just going to think that it's sunny. That's not fact. That's imagination. You're just making stuff up. What Paul's saying is reckon according to the facts of history. Reckon according to what the Scriptures say happened. It's faith because it's rooted purely in what God has said. Nothing else comes into it. You don't feel justified. You don't feel dead to sin. Actually, the longer you're a Christian, the more and more you become Sensitive to sins. It's like sin just 
gets more and more. You, you don't feel cleaned up. He doesn't say reckon based on feelings. He doesn't say reckon based on how you feel on Tuesday, based on how you feel on Thursday. It's not just imaginary positive thinking. This is based on fact. Death, resurrection. Death, resurrection. What happened? He died. Then what happened? He was raised. It's done. Nothing in our tangible experience, now hear what I'm saying, tangible experience, that is we sense with the physical senses, ever comes to us and says, you know, the law of God has no claim on you. Look at you, you're doing so good, you're so holy, you're doing... That's not what we feel. That's not our experience. As a matter of fact, everything in our flesh screams the opposite. And this is what the enemy of our souls likes to use against us. Oh, sin. See it right there. Sin. You're not dead to sin. You, you got a sin there. There's two sins. There's three sins. Oh, there's that same sin from last week. There you go. That, that's what he uses. We reckon according to this. Not that. This. This is exactly why the life of faith alone brings about true evangelical obedience. Faith alone leads to true evangelical obedience. That's what Paul's saying. But the people came back and said, sounds like that's going to lead to just more sin. But think about this. I've mentioned this before, but I've been thinking about this even further. Why is it that when we reckon according to this, it actually produces obedience? We're all born in Adam. And usually when we use the phrase in Adam or we say we're sons of Adam, we're talking about Adam post-fall. We're sinners. But why are we in that fallen state in Adam post-fall? It's because we were in Adam pre-fall. When Adam was in a covenant of works with God, he stood as our representative head. He stood and we in him. We are in Adam post-fall because he broke that covenant of works. So that in Adam, hear this, in Adam, by nature, all we know is a covenant of works. The covenant of works says, obey and live, disobey and die. There's no opportunity for repentance. There's no category for grace. There's no category for mercy. Obey and live, disobey and die. That's, that's, that's our natural condition in Adam. We live by that covenant by nature. Obey, live, sin and die. No repentance, no mercy, no grace. Just do it. That is us by nature. And the problem is that it is utterly impossible for us, fallen in Adam, to obey God if that is our framework. If that's the way we think, you can't obey God. I'll explain why. If all you have is that natural framework, a covenant of works mentality with no room for repentance, no room for mercy, no room for grace, then how are you going to think about God? What is your disposition toward God? The answer is Adam's disposition when he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's your disposition. I got to get away. I got to hide. He's going to kill me. He's going to destroy me. I've got to run from him. I got to cover myself. And even to the point of blaming God for his own sin. Because all he had was fear and terror with God, before God. Because the covenant of works made no provision in that fallen state. Adam's attitude toward God was one of fear and even, even blaming God. And you cannot obey God if that's your attitude. You cannot obey God as long as you view Him as a despotic tyrant whose law continues to hold the acts of condemnation over your head. You see, our attitude and perception of God is the root and source of whether we are obedient or disobedient. It starts with the knowledge of God, how we view God, what we know of God. Paul says in Colossians 1, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Alienated from what? God. Hostile to what? God. What did that produce? Evil deeds. If that's your attitude towards God, run, get away, hide, He's going to kill me, you're just going to live in sin. 
That's all you've got to work with. In short, you cannot obey God if you do not love Him. You can't obey God if you don't love Him. Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love of God and obedience to God go hand in hand. Loving God is the summary of the law. You cannot obey God if you don't love Him. But the Scriptures teach also, in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. That's where it starts. We love because He first loved us. In other words, God's love has to come first in this whole thing. You can't love God until you believe He loves you. This is why we began with love last Lord's Day. The love of God. You have to believe it. You must believe that God loves you. That's a hard thing to believe. It's a hard, nearly impossible, in and by nature, impossible to believe God loves you. Because nature, under that covet of works, screams the exact opposite. Nature says, you're a sinner. God's holy. He's going to kill you. That's what nature says. You have to believe that He loves you. The covenant of works doesn't make a provision for such love. And that's why we have to be brought into the realm of grace. You don't love God first and then receive from Him a reciprocal act of love and mercy. We don't send out our love and hope that He responds in love. No, He started it. He came first. He loved us first. Only when we realize God's love for us can we then respond in love to Him? Well, how do we know God loves us? How do we know God loves us? What's Paul been saying here? Death, resurrection. Death, resurrection. Look at, look at what he did. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. For God so loved the world, He loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's where we see God's love, in the substitutionary death of His Son for us. And when we reckon, according to the testimony of Scripture, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that by His death the demands of God's law are satisfied in our circumstance, we are reckoning based on the facts, the most clear manifestation of the love of God. We could say, here's, here's the data, the love of God. Now reckon based on that. But what do we do? We do the opposite. The justice of God, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the holiness of God. Reckon according to that. Oh, and slide in there your sins. Now reckon. I'm dead. Paul says, look at Christ. Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. Reckon based on that. Reckon based on the love of God. And this is why Paul says, The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's That's where it it starts. We, We... He gave Himself as our substitute. Why? Because He loved us. He loves us. This is why Paul prayed that the Ephesians would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do we get the fullness? How do we extract it out of Him? We do so by faith. And the ultimate, the the, the staple of our faith is the love of God. We love God. Knowing the love of God for you is central to obedience. Knowing the love of God is why we can sing, Thou hast died for me. And there are times when we get to that part of the song and we want to say, Thou hast died, and that's good news. We're, we're kind of nervous to take it and put my name on it. You have died for me. When you recognize God loves you, He gave His Son for you. You can say, you died for me. That's what He wants us to see, His love. And this is where we see that the covenant of grace in Christ is contrary to our natural state. This covenant, as to the ongoing manifestations of its blessings, 
require greater and greater faith. As faith increases, we get the blessings more and more. They're already ours. We retrieve them from Him by faith. The more we act our faith upon the revelation of God explaining to us what He has done in Christ, the more we'll come to know His love for us. And the more we apprehend God's love for us in Christ, the more we love Him. And the more we love Him, the more we will obey His commandments. But it's hard. Faith is difficult. Faith is contrary to our natural state. That's the whole point. We do not live by sight, by natural sense and experience. We live by faith. What does the Scripture say? Because our experience seems to reveal more and more of our own sinfulness, then it requires more and more faith to believe that the guilt of all of these sins are gone. It plagues our consciences when we, when, we, when we hold these two realities. It's easy to look back at who we were before Christ and say, boy, I was a sinner. I'm glad He washed those sins away. But then we look at us now and we say, I'm a born-again person. I just keep sinning. How, how can this be paid for? Same death. Same resurrection. Many have said that believing the gospel is the hardest thing in the world to believe. And it's, I think it's really a great conundrum because we, we receive it by faith like little children at first. Children can believe. It's a, it's a simple thing. The, the just for the unjust. The godly for the ungodly. That's simple. Trust in Him. But as we grow, we realize more and more of our own sinfulness. We see it more and more. And it's like it becomes harder and harder to believe that it can actually be true of me. So here's Paul's remedy. Keep coming back to the same Christ and the same work and believing what God's Word says and reckon yourself dead to sin in Christ. And it's here that our perception of God has changed. If Adam would have been able to see if he could have understood when he sinned, that there was a sinless substitute already waiting in the bullpen for him to take away all his guilt and pain, he wouldn't have ran from God. He would have ran to God. That wasn't available under that, that administration. Grace had to enter in. Our perception of God changes so that we no longer see wrath. We see love. And seeing love, we respond in love. And if we love Him, we'll keep His commandments. So this is where we start. How do I live by faith? You open up the Word of God and see what it says about what Christ did. How, how simple and yet how rare is it that we do that? This is why I said several weeks ago. Pile books around you about, about the work of Christ and just keep reading them. Get out the Scriptures and read Romans 3 and read Galatians 2. Read, read 1 Peter. Read Isaiah 53. Just read it over and over. What does it say? Oh, I still feel sinful. We don't reckon based on that. We reckon based on the facts of what Christ has done. If you're a Christian, that's where your faith lies. If you're not a Christian, then you hear all of this. Perhaps you're saying, well, that's just not for me. I don't, I, don't, I don't care much for that lifestyle or, or whatever. Again, we're not inviting somebody to a lifestyle. We're trying to get people to see the love of God for sinners. That He stands holding out His hands all day long and He says, turn, turn. God beckons sinners to come. We never see Him beckoning sinners to sin so that He can glorify His wrath and or glorify His justice in their condemnation. His, His justice will be glorified in the condemnation of sinners. He knows that. But He doesn't beckon more sinners to come so that He can glorify it more. He beckons sinners to come and be saved. This is what He wants, sinners to be saved. This is His love poured out. He's, he's placarded it. The, the image of the cross outside Jerusalem where people from all nations were coming in. The, the, the sign written in multiple languages so that people who couldn't read Aramaic could read it in Latin or, or Greek. 
so that all nations would see God has put forth His Son. He wants people to see it. His love. So as we come to the Lord's table, we'll consider Christ's death. But now, as we take the bread and the cup, we're remembering in His death, we died. In His blood, we died. Our sins are covered and washed. It is a, a sobering thought to think of the realities that the Lord's table points to in what happened to our Lord. And it's typically when we consider what happened to Christ on the cross in itself, it doesn't cause us to to leap and, and shout yippee and, and laugh. And, but when we realize what it was for and what happened and the, the application of it to us, it is a, a thing to rejoice over, to be glad over. So as the elements are passed, just remember that we've died to sin. That in being baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death. We've been buried with Him by baptism into death. We were united with Him in a death like His. Our old man was crucified with Him. And that we ought to reckon ourselves that way. So consider those things as the elements are passed and then we'll come to the table together.